it's time for another new episode, Don. And this time we have a special guest that you've worked with over the years. Yeah. Yeah. Reaching out to uh, past uh, people that we've worked with, I guess, past customers and uh, trying to find out who would be uh, willing and uh, definitely able to, to join us on our podcast. And I think we found a good candidate in, in that regard. Yeah, I agree. We have Jeremy Kohler joining us. He's a director of R&D for a, a small uh, startup out in the Bay Area. And we've worked with him over the years, and he's willing to share his biocompatibility story with us, which I think has a lot of lessons that we can take away for especially small companies. Yeah, and for sure. Their their story, as as Jeremy will tell it, you know, kind of brings to light, even for a device that may be considered low risk, how biocompatibility can can creep into the the schedule or mess with your schedule and and cause you some headaches along the way and yeah. and Jeremy was kind enough to share his experience and what he learned and and how he got through that process with us and uh um yeah it's a it's a nice discussion especially from the viewpoint of a a, a small medical device manufacturer that uh doesn't have you know a huge staff to lean on when it comes to the the issue, the right. topic of biocomp Right. Yeah. It's a great story of the importance of using a plan and having some rationalization around your decisions and how using a test matrix as your plan is not always a good choice. So we hope you all enjoy this episode. And again, special thanks to Jeremy for joining us. We're uh, grateful he spent his time with us. Hope you all enjoy. Welcome to Biocompatibility the first ever podcast focused on the biocompatibility of medical devices. NAMSA is happy to bring biocompatibility to you, where each episode features leading industry experts and their discussions on biocompatibility challenges. Be sure to visit www.namsa.com for more information and to access all podcasts and transcripts. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Okay, welcome everybody to a new episode of Biocompatibility. Don, you know, in our time at NAMSA, we have some opportunities to work with some pretty cool people and, and see some companies from the start to, to success. And, and today we're lucky enough to have one of those people joining us. That's right. Yeah. Every once in a while, you know, you come across uh, people that, uh, you know, you, you jot their names down and you say, you know what, I'm going to reach out to that person for something in the future. And then, you know, you know, not to date myself, but used to be, you know, you'd put a card in a Rolodex, but now I think you save them to your fingers <laughs> or something like that. So right. don't lie. You still have a Rolodex, Don. You still have a Rolodex. <laughs> no, I do not. I do not. <laughs> okay. Well, so yeah, today we're, we're lucky enough to have one of the companies we worked with over the years, Jeremy Kohler joining us. He's the director of R&D for Prescient Surgical. So Jeremy, welcome to Biocompatibility. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be a part of it. Well, we are happy that you're here. We, as Don and I say, we, it's always a lot more fun when people join us or they show up or they listen, any of those things, all of the above, those are all great things. So we're, yeah, we're happy that you're with us. We can, we can say that Jeremy was not a former colleague from NAMSA, no. does not work at NAMSA. So there's like no strings attached in terms of, you know, how we, he, he, he came willingly to, to join us. <laughs> we have, we have nothing on him. <laughs> no, we do not. We do not. We just know him. So that's it. We just know him. And, and yeah, we're, we're glad that he's willing to join us. Cause one of the, the great things that you're going to hear in, in Jeremy's story, and we'll get into it in a little bit is, you know, small companies and the effects that 
a hiccup when it comes to biocompatibility could really have on their development cycle. And so we're going to hear a little bit about that story from Jeremy. Is So I, I mentioned he's the director of R&D. He's been uh, involved in integral parts of development and engineering and manufacturing for their clean scission wound retraction and protection system. So this is one of the one of the devices that that uh, we're going to talk about here. He's a mechanical engineer. He is an undergrad boilermaker and a graduate school Wolverine. So we're all big ten folks here on the line. Um, Don's a Buckeye and I'm a Cornhusker. So big ten represents uh, on the podcast today. Okay, so Jeremy, you know, again, thank you for joining us. Thank you for spending time with us. We know that. You know, everybody's very busy right now. So spending some time to to talk to us about biocompatibility is, you know, we're certainly grateful that that you're willing to do that today. Absolutely. So why don't you give us a little bit of background on your company and, you know, just kind of the the general overview. And I mentioned, you know, obviously just the the name of the product, but give us a little bit more background there on on Prescient. Sure. So Prescient Surgical, we're a small medical device company in the San Francisco Bay Area. We're a venture backed startup. And we were started from napkin sketch all the way through to a commercial launch, as we'll, we'll get to a little bit here. But I've been around the company from that very beginning out of the Stanford Biodesign Program. And okay. we're really focused on developing technology to help reduce the incidence of surgical site infection, which can turn into a nasty a complication of surgery that we think still happens more frequently than it really, really needs to or should. And uh, as Sherry mentioned, our first product is called the Clean Scission. It's an irrigating wound protection system that continuously cleanses and clears out harmful bacteria during surgery while protecting uh, and retracting the wound edge. So it's used just during the surgery. Okay. It contacts tissue in and around the surgery. So in, in biocom speak, it's an, we consider an externally communicating limited contact device. It's not an implant. There's no drug delivery. It's just a strictly right. mechanical uh, type of product. So not a send home treatment or anything. We're really talking about what would be deemed maybe a fairly low risk device, right? I would agree with that. Uh, we can hear what Don <laughs> thinks. Yeah, I would. I would tend to agree with that. And and I would say one thing in in Jeremy's description, you know, as as Jeremy categorized it in terms of biocomp speak, um, it is not in contact with circulating blood, um, right? Which came up throughout this evaluation. <laughs> but um, anyways, yeah. So yeah. Don, I know you worked real closely with with Jeremy, and that that you have some some questions and and some some outline of of the work that y'all did together. So I will sit back and let you uh, yeah. proceed here, and I'll interject whenever I think I have something smart to say. <laughs> All right. All right. Yeah, and I guess Jeremy, one thing I was gonna when you say a small company, like I, I want to say when you and I were working together on on the device on the clean scission device, I, I want to say there was like five people. Uh, in terms of defining small is, is how, how many people are, are part of your company today? Yes. Yeah, so we've, we've grown from five to at our peak around 10 doubled from five, but still really, really small company. Gotcha. All right. So the idea that within your company, even from the beginning that you had a dedicated staff for biocompatibility was probably a, a gross overstatement. If I had to guess most, most definitely. All right. Yeah. Which certainly isn't uncommon for sure, which uh, I think does. And I think for, you know, there's a lot of these types of startups like us out here in the Bay Area. And, uh, you know, we look to really leverage external resources, you know, folks like yourselves, 
other consultants and experts and then just our peers to figure out, you know, hey, how did you guys approach this? What are, you know, what are your thoughts on that? And there's a quite a bit of a community out here that really helps, you know, tiny companies like us kind of leverage, you know, joint experience from everybody else that we're connected with. So that makes a big difference and helps helps inform things. I think as we'll kind of get to in our story, it's not always all the information that you need to get there, but it definitely helps kind of supplement from the, you know, really, really small team that we we had and have kind of kept along the way. Yeah. If nothing else, it gives you an idea of maybe at a high level, what you're up against, what you need to know, um, and, and to some degree, probably how to approach it a, again at a very high level. So yeah. kind of go, yeah. And then, then the devil's in the detail sometimes, you know, and that's kind of where, where, you, yeah. uh, you know, that can kind of run, uh, run aground, so to speak. Yep. Yep. And I guess to kind of play off that. So from your guys's point of view, from a small company, you know, working to get your first device on the market, what approach did you take to address biocompatibility in terms of like a testing program or just addressing it in a general sense? Yeah. So we didn't have a very detailed plan starting out. You know, it was a checkbox in the development uh, plan. We knew it had to be done, but our kind of assumption going in was, hey, you followed the table in, in ISO 10903 part one, you take materials that you know have been used or are, are medical grade and, uh, you know, you're likely to be all right. And from the information we gathered from people, you know, that seemed to be some of the prevailing thought at the time. And that was kind of, you know, pick the stuff we knew would, we had a good chance of working when we were doing the design. We then looked at the table, checked the box on what we thought we needed to test, you know, on a biological evaluation standpoint and uh, built the samples and sent them in. Yeah. And I guess from that Here. standpoint. Yeah. Sorry. What year was this? I mean, I'm just curious. I, re- I, I remember it. I think I remember being involved in some of the early calls. So for me, it was like two jobs ago at NAMSA. So I was wondering what year was, was this, Jeremy, when you guys were, were doing your biocomp testing and getting ready for your first submission? I believe it was 2012. Okay. Yeah. And I've lost track of time, so I couldn't even guess quite me honestly. Too. That's, uh... <laughs> I just constantly feel older and older every day. But regardless, and one thing else at that time when you guys were putting the, your, your plan for Biocomp together, I mean, when I was involved, we were just talking FDA, but I assume that was the primary target at that time was just FDA as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just looked up, it was 2013 off by a year. Okay. okay. All right. The focus was FDA. We had have plans uh, to pursue Europe, but um, strategically the company decided to focus on the domestic market initially, and so FDA was the the focus at that point. Yeah, and and some people that will listen to this podcast will probably think, okay, externally communicating, limited contact. What more is there to talk about? Because we just have cytosensitization, irritation, <laughs> acute systemic, and pyrogen testing. So, what gives? You know, eight days later, you should be done with this and beyond. But yeah, it, it, as it played out, it got a little bit more interesting. But I, I guess before we get to the end. Of Rory, right? So, <laughs> when did you guys start thinking in terms of the product development cycle? When did you guys start thinking about biocompatibility? Yeah, it was really a month or two before we needed to get samples out and start testing. Prior to that, as we were working on it, again, like I mentioned, we we picked materials that we thought would be best, and that was kind of as far as it got. We weren't really thinking about manufacturing process, raw material suppliers. It was really pick materials that we think are going to pass because that's really what this is all about. And we didn't really use a scientific or risk-based approach to identify what are things we, we could or should be looking into or be worried about. 
and we didn't really have a materials biocomp expert like you mentioned, Don, with a team of five, none of us were biocomp experts. So we didn't really have any other input coming in as we were making some of those material choices. So it was really, you know, the design was what design needed to be for performance reasons. We picked materials that we thought would be good from a biocomp standpoint. And then we went to the table, picked the things off, sent the POs, the samples, and testing started. So it, it didn't really come in early. I didn't come in very early in the design design cycle and definitely too late to really make any any substantive changes without big impacts later on. Yeah. So, I mean, in terms of actually forming biocompatibility, I mean, it sounds like you know, after the device was designed, put together and everything, then formally somebody said, okay, let's make sure that we get our biocomp done so that we have it ready for our submission and move on with it. Yep. And I, I assume at that point, I mean, especially... 2013, small company. I'm guessing nobody's really documenting this these decisions along the way. Just, <laughs> just probably doing what most do, saying this seems like it's USP Class Six. It's got Cido. We know somebody else used it, like you said, through your maybe even through uh, you know networking with colleagues and and others within the industry in the area. You might you know might have said we've had good luck with this material, but I could see where. These things don't get formally documented and, and you have a device, you have to do testing. So, so in you go. So I guess from that, that testing standpoint, kind of walk us through that testing and how things went for you guys. And I guess how the world of cytosensitization, irritation, acute systemic and pyrogen testing played out for you. Yeah. So we, uh, you know, we're doing the testing. We did have Perspective protocols, we had all the quality system requirements, but I, I agree with Dying. The piece that wasn't really there was the rationale of exactly what we're doing, why we're doing it, what risk we were looking to address. It was, hey, here's the product, here's what we need, what the table says we need to do, and then we do those tests. So, you know, as a matter of doing the testing, everything passed. That was great, very exciting milestone. I remember when those reports <laughs> came in, and I was like, so that was interesting to kind of learn, learn what was actually going on in the testing. So we passed everything, you know, put our submission together, sent it off to the regulators, and then got some questions back. Not surprising from a lot of the people I've talked to as well, but the challenge kind of came in when we didn't really have a good, strong scientific justification for what we'd done and why we'd done it and um, why we did it and why it was appropriate and sufficient to answer the questions that need to be answered. So while the regulators' questions may not have been fully Root in science either. We kind of got sucked into a vortex of more testing and spent a lot of time really trying to figure out what the regular was looking for, how to appropriately address the question. Things kind of changed a little bit along the way as well, but that didn't really help matters. So we ultimately had to kind of start establishing a scientific foundation for some of the testing that we were doing to kind of slow the vortex, be able to kind of put a foot down and say, look, we've, we've addressed the question. Here's what the science says. Here's what we've done to support that foundation. And like, you know, let's move forward. And so we kind of ultimately got, you know, the product across the finish line um, with that, but it would have been really nice to have kind of gotten to that science foundation first. And now in subsequent interactions you know, with those regulators and others, our knee-jerk reaction now is to go to the science first and then testing evaluation second. We kind of started with what's the next test we need to do? How can we answer this as quick as possible? Because again, as a small company, you know, speed is, speed is everything and time is a, uh, Time is a pretty precious commodity. So we're trying to kind of quickly get to the next thing to move on. And that didn't really um, serve us as well when things that, you know, admittedly really complicated 
Um, and we need to make sure we're, we were doing the right stuff. And, and that, that's really the point in which I, I connected with Don and the team in IMSA to uh, really start sorting through some of those nitty gritty details, trying to understand exactly what we were, you know, what questions are being asked and how to address the science appropriately. Yeah. And as, as I remember, I mean, it, even though, you know, I mentioned all the endpoints that, that you guys, you know, tested against in terms of the biological testing, but, you know, as I recall, be it good, bad, or indifferent, chemical characterization got brought into the discussion along the way. And I mean, there definitely was some, some science and thought being put into that and, and some discussions around what was needed, what wasn't needed because of the type of exposure. But it, it was interesting through, through all those discussions and such that at the end of the day, the one, I think the one test that, that had to be performed to, to get clearance was of all things, the material mediated pyrogenicity study, you know, it all, <laughs> this whole thing boiled down to a one day test and getting that done. Well, so I think that's an interesting, that's an interesting point. I mean, whether it boiled down to pyrogen or cyto or sensitization or whatever, but you know, the, the delays, you know, I don't know if there were other things, but you know, biocomp was a big part of, of your delay. How long do you think that, like Biocomp was responsible for your delay, Jeremy? Like, are we talking months? At least a year. Oh, gosh. <laughs> wow. There were extra tests that were done, and there was tests that had to be repeated. And then questions changed, or new data came out, which generated another question. Right. And <laughs> that then pumped another question. And that's kind of what I thought with the vortex of testing, where we were kind of, felt like we were chasing our tails a little bit. And without having that scientific foundation to say, here's what, science says we should be focused on. Here's how we've addressed that. You know, we kind of, kind of weren't tied down as so we were kind of just spinning our spinning in circles a bit, um, right. trying, to, trying to get it done instead of, um, you know, actually having that foundation to, to start with and, and kind of tie everything into. So unfortunate. I mean, I, and I know that you guys are not unique and you're not the only company that's had this type of situation. So, you know, thank you for sharing, you know, your story. Cause I think there's so many people that can, you know, kind of a moral here is have a solid scientific plan to help you down the road. Yeah. One thing I was going to ask, ask you, and you might've said this and I've, and I missed it, but outside of the United States, have you guys, is this device CE marked at this point or is it uh, just a U.S. device? It is CE marked. Um, strategically, the company has decided not to pursue commercializing in Europe right now, but we have the CE mark and we're, um, we'll be pursuing that kind of when this, when this time is right. Yeah. Cause it, I mean, it's in this, I, I know it's, you know, not part of your story as it is right now, but I mean, just from the standpoint of in the future, especially once to get to commercialization and with the MDR and everything else, you know, certainly that situation would definitely benefit from all the, the formal documentation of what went on and the, why testing was done and what materials were selected and why, because certainly from a notified body point of view, have, have seen that start to come into play more and more. Sure. You know, whereas, I, I, you know, I won't say it's not something that the FDA doesn't look for, but for this type of device, it's probably less likely that the FDA would say, where's your plan for investigation um, as compared to a notified body and that sort of thing. But um, yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it, was, it was definitely an interesting uh, uh, situation. <laughs> and like I said, I mentioned it at the beginning, it should have been done and over with conceptually in 58 days. But as you said, things changed. 
questions were asked. 49 now, Don, actually. Oh. <laughs> I, I just pulled numbers <laughs> out of the air. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> so, so what's the product doing now? Are we making a medical impact in the world, hopefully? Yeah, so product is in the market, commercial available. Um, we're distributing here in the U.S. And the product's been been studied and published and shown to reduce bacterial contamination and surgical site infection by over 60%, which is well, that's awesome. super, super yeah. exciting, rewarding for obviously us who've been a part of it, but you know, other people and partners along the way. NAMSA is certainly in that group helping us get to where we are. Uh, you know, it takes a, it takes a big, t- much bigger than a five-person team to make it all happen. So we've uh, had fantastic <laughs> partners. And you know, we all have some, some battle scars to be sure, but it's definitely really rewarding knowing that it's out there making a difference and you know everybody gets to share a little bit in that the victory and what now patients are uh, enjoying from a, a treatment standpoint yeah for sure i always think about biocomp as this one little piece of the puzzle and and certainly there's a lot of other aspects that go into getting a device out there in the market and it's for uh, sure yeah but it's and it's i mean this is a great example of you know, how maybe taking it a little lightly um, can be dangerous in the long run for your timelines. So do you view it differently now, Jeremy, as far as biocompatibility and its role in your development? And I'm assuming you guys are continuing to develop and probably have some new things that, you know, hopefully you'll be getting out onto the market someday. But what's your your view now when it comes to biocompatibility? Now that we're kind of past the initial phase. Now it's all about change control and how does biocompatibility impact future design changes and decisions that we make. And, you know, we learned a, a lot along the way, you know, and, and biocomp is definitely an integral part of evaluating any change that we would think to make. And learned a lot from, you know, from Don about, well, yeah, changing a raw, raw material supplier may not sound like much if you're getting the same material, but there could be an impact there. So let's talk about what the risks are. Let's talk about what mitigations might need to be put in place. So. I would say it kind of fits right at the, the top of the matrix. If you think about, you know, changes, changes being proposed, what are all the impacts? Biocomp is right up there next to performance testing, just as important as, as that. So definitely has a big seat at the table for any of those type of discussions uh, moving forward. And that's, that's, I mean, that's just definitely good to hear from, from you, from your side in terms of Biocomp, you know, being an integral part of the, the process. Um, I, I just, was thinking back to a call earlier today where uh, a company was basically just saying, well, our files get attention when auditors show up. And it's like, well, that's like way too late in the process. <laughs> unless, unless you really don't like sleeping at night, I guess you can play that game. But um, That's like but yeah. changing the batteries in the smoke detector after the house burned down. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. But, but from, from your point, Jeremy, you know, with it, designed as an integral part of your overall process, you know, then you don't, then you can sleep at night. Then you, uh, you have the information, sure. you have things documented. And it's important to mention that not every change triggers more testing. Exactly. Right? Oh, yeah. yeah. Considered and addressed. And as you mentioned, Don, documented. So if you do make a decision or do make a change, you have evidence that you thought about it, evidence of what the team agreed to, they all sign off and you move forward and you can sleep at night and you have a documented for when the file gets looked at. But at like at a bare minimum, that's what needs to, in my opinion, that's what needs to happen. Yeah, and I think I think some cases people don't even, I mean, they realize there was a change. They don't think it's significant, but they don't want to ask the question because they just think somebody's going to tell them you need to do <laughs> testing just to do testing. And it's like, you know, I, I'd say there's plenty of projects that I'm involved in where I 
justifiably tell people, look, you don't have to do testing. You have to address biocom. I'm not saying you have to do testing because what you just changed, I think there's a reason, a justification and, you know, for, for not doing anything, but you got to put it on paper, um, document it and, and file it away and, and use it when you need to. So definitely. So I guess looking back, is there anything that you would do differently overall in the process uh, What in, in terms of biocompatibility? Yeah, it would have been great if, if we'd engage an expert a little bit earlier in the process to kind of look at, you know, help identify risks, not only in the materials, but in the manufacturing, the processing, kind of the whole start to finish, and then start planning out, you know, our mitigation of those risks. Obviously, testing is going to be a part of that, but what are things could we have been thinking about potentially in a smarter smarter way to help get to the finish line faster? And I think not only just the, the 10 9 FA biologic test, but you know, even more importantly, um, what are things we could be doing sooner to sooner identify and mitigate those risks, whether it's deeper materials research or historical uses of things or chemical characterization of a raw material. Because if you have something special or new that you're trying to do and you have an unknown safety profile, gosh, it'd be nice to know that before you invest all the time and effort energy to get it all the way to the end. And then you fail, you know, a month before you're supposed to submit for a regulatory. So, um, you know, we didn't have any, any big pitfalls, but it would have been nice to have identified these risks earlier had an answer for them based in science so that when it came up during a regulatory review, we would have had a kind of a scientific um, stance to kind of present rather than um, kind of not quite having a good foundation there and then starting to head down the path of doing more things probably a lot later than we really should have. Some of the tests, if we'd done it sooner, would have put us in a much better position and get through faster. I guess from that, that point of view as well, in terms of your position on biocompatibility, for your company's sake, I mean, obviously there were some some growing pains, if you will, as you went through this process in terms of biocompatibility. But I, I mean, just from your point of view, do you feel pretty confident that you have biocompatibility, at least I'll say under control or know how to address it the next time that it, uh, that uh, you find that you need to look into what you need to do for biocomp? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, some of that's from you know, the, the pains that we went through, but a lot of it too is from learning from, from people like people like you, Don, and other experts I've connected with over, over the years, you know, when you kind of pick things up here, pick it up there, you attend the webinars, you know, I think part of the ongoing training, ongoing education stuff that, that people like you guys and other people put out, it's really important to help kind of stay up to date on what the latest guidance is, latest rev of the standards, you know, now that I've, we've been through this, I know a lot more of the right questions to be asking and things to be looking out for. I may not know the tactical details of X, Y, Z, but I know what to, I'm so confident knowing what to, questions to be asking, what to be looking at to put a plan together for the next device when it comes along or evaluate a change that we have or a new product line extension that we're looking at and pursuing, you know, to put a plan together to pursue But I, I don't think I'm, I would pursue this without an expert kind of by my side. People, folks like you guys are, or some other lab, like there's reasons you guys have experts like Don who are on calls with customers. <laughs> Because we, we really do benefit from the breadth of exposure that you guys get to the testing, to results, to even the materials and, and kind of what questions you guys are seeing coming in from, uh, from regulators and from, from other people. So like, that's always going to be a little a critical piece of it that, um, you know, especially as a small company, we're never going to have the breadth of experience that, that you guys or even a bigger company would have. So. But I think we could get to a good, really good test plan a lot quicker than we did before. And with a much higher likelihood of success 
getting through, um, you know, in a more timely manner with, uh, with regulators. And I think it does speak to the point that, you know, people are always asking, you know, ISO 10993 part one talks about qualified individuals make informed decisions when it comes to biocomp and that sort of thing. And people will say, you know, what makes that qualified person? And I think you hit on, you know, one of the biggest things, quite honestly, is just experiences. After you go through this several times in terms of what's needed and and how to put together a successful strategy and evaluation, I mean, you're definitely better the next time than you were the last time. And you do that time and time again, and you feel a little bit more confident in the end, uh, you know, and you hope that you're creating a better resolution. So I think from your point, Jeremy, you guys would, I mean, if you had to go through this process yourselves, even without experts, I think knowing what you know now, you know, it'd just be, you'd be better at it the next time for sure. Excellent. Well, I mean, thank you so much for walking us through your, your story there. I think it's um, invaluable information for, for folks to, to hear and to, to listen to and understand. You make some great points and, and we're grateful that you're willing to share it with our listeners. So I think unless you all have any more technical talk, we can jump into a fun little game of two truths and a lie if, we, uh, if we're ready. Let's do it. Okay. (laughs) Okay, Jeremy. So we did prep you. We like all of our, especially our first time guests that join us to play a little game of two truths and a lie with us, where we're going to share three things about ourselves and working in and around medical device and biocompatibility. And um, two of them will be true and one will be a lie. And then the other folks get a guess which one of them is the lie. So we didn't draw straws before we went. So who would like to go first? I can get us started. Okay. All, All right, right, Don. I, I just realized mine are kind of long. I don't know why I did this to myself. <laughs> so we may have to listen really intently, huh? I, I'll try to make it quick. Okay. First okay. one. Number one, I did chemical characterization testing to demonstrate that there was no DEHP in a device to support my evaluation strategy. And lo and behold, we did the testing and found DEHP. <laughs> okay. Number number two, all three of these things happened to me and all involved earthquakes. I gave a training where there was a a, a light earthquake in the background. I had a colleague join a conference call during an earthquake, and I experienced an earthquake during a customer visit. All those things as related to earthquakes happened to me. Okay. And then the last one. I literally had a customer once ask me how much lead solder they could use in their medical device. <laughs> and would that be a concern? So lead, those, did you say lead yes. solder? Le- okay. Lead solder. Yeah. Yeah. You know, versus the lead free type. Why, why choose that? <laughs> okay. So those, those are my three. One of those is a lie or contains a lie. Put it that it's way. A lie. All right. Jeremy, do you have a guess? I'm going to guess the earthquake. There's a lot of details there and you could have just. <laughs> I think I'm going to go with you too, because I'm going with two, because I know the one training I was at where there was an earthquake, you were not with me. Oh, but in San Diego, there was one. Oh, yeah, shoot. And I, and I, I qualified it by saying a light earthquake because we a were light earthquake even, in the background. We, shoot. we weren't even sure if we felt the earth shake, but uh, was it the train or an earthquake? It was a big debate in the room. Uh, yeah, um, it was. It was. But you guys I'm are both going right. to go with number two. Is it number two? Yeah, okay. Which yeah, one yeah. was it? Which one wasn't true of those? And I, I was never in a customer visit and there oh. was an earthquake. 
okay. I was well, on, I was on a conference call and somebody answered the phone <laughs> during an earthquake. A little scary, but afterwards kind of comical. But anyway, Jeremy, that's probably no big deal for you guys out there. Do you hear tremor? Do you feel tremors very often? Every now and then. Um, yeah. But I haven't felt any anything really substantial. Hopefully, it stays that way. <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. All right, uh, Jeremy, you want to go next? I once did my own unofficial extraction study in a jelly jar in the R&D lab to see if a material would degrade in an extraction vehicle. Two, uh, I first met Don on an airplane on our way to meet with regulators. And then three, I once did an extraction study at 50C for 24 hours with agreement from a regulator that that was acceptable. Oh, gosh. The jelly jar thing, I don't doubt. I actually, if you did it, that's awesome because more people should do it to help help figure out what solutions you should use. Um, I don't know if you met Don on the airplane. I'm going to go, num- well, no, I'm, I'll go with number two as the lie. I, I'm going to agree because I don't think we met on the airplane. You're both right. We did not. I mean, we met in the hotel lobby. In the hotel that's lobby. What that's what I thought. I'm, I'm sitting here thinking to myself, no, I didn't meet him yet. <laughs> I love the jelly jar thing, though. That's awesome. Yeah. Two, two or three years later, when I stumbled across it again, it was, uh, it was still there. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> what solvent were you using? Uh, IPA. IPA. <laughs> All right. Okay. So remember, I've been at NAMS a long time, and I was in sales for years. So a couple of mine have to do with biocompatibility sales calls. Um, so number one, I've discussed biocompatibility more than once with regulatory reviewers while eating cold meat sandwiches. Number two, I once did a sales call to a tattoo parlor. And number three, I once did a sales call to a piercing studio. So I'll say number three. I was going with three as well as being false. Yeah. Man, we didn't stump anybody today. Yeah, right. <laughs> so I have done a phone call with a piercing studio about biocomp, but I didn't actually go visit, but I did go to a tattoo parlor. And uh, yeah, number one. I thought I might catch you there because Don knows I don't like cold meat sandwiches, but I've had to eat them on a couple of different times. So. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you guys. This has been fun. Jeremy, again, thank you so much for spending time with us, your valuable time and sharing your story. We're super grateful for that. And if we had a participation gift, we would send you one. Um, but <laughs> as of right now, we don't. <laughs> Uh, All right, everyone. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for joining us. Hope you all have enjoyed this episode and we will catch you again next time. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy Biocompatibility, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast store. For free resources and material, remember to visit www.namsa.com slash resources slash podcast.